Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. All right, welcome back to the London is Blue podcast in our ongoing series discussing anti-Semitism and racism. Uh, we are continued to be joined by uh, Dan, another Dan, Dan Levine, uh, Amity. We also have Nick Verlaney and Mike Flynn as well who uh, rejoin us. And we're going to begin this next part with Dan Levine reading a bit of his article that he put. It's, it's on our website, lensblipodcast.com, and you can read the article in full, but we wanted Dan to share some of the article that he wrote, and it's in reference to a trip he took that was sponsored by Chelsea to take supporters to Auschwitz-Birkenau, the uh, Nazi uh, extermination and concentration camp uh, used in World War II. And I'd like to turn it over to Dan to uh, share a little bit of uh, his words and his voice. Thanks. It's probably 20 years since I wrote my first story about anti-Semitism at Chelsea. In the time I've supported and reported on this club, a period exceeding 30 years, it's been more or less a constant. It's a complex matter here, which is not to say the abhorrence of it is in any way diminished. Many perpetrators claim an antipathy towards Spurs, not Jews. Some among them probably even believe that. But the songs about the death camps prevail. They've ebbed and flowed over that time, from the 80s Nadir to a period where abuse diminished in the post-Champions League triumph world, to the era beyond the Brexit vote, when aspects of the support have spoken up with gusto. Spurs are not They're a North London team which inhabits a part of N17, once quite Jewish, now very African-Caribbean, with a strong Turkish influence. Spurs never chose the Y-word tag, 
but they decided to own it, a theoretical strike against the haters. Probably 97% or more of their support is Goyim, as the few remaining Jews in the area might refer to those not of the race. Had they not taken the moniker on in the 60s, they might have left the search for a badge of pride into the 80s or the 90s, in which case would they now call themselves the N-word army? If they did, would that be acceptable? And would abuse of it be tolerable? In both cases, the answer seems obvious. I think the for, for those who have not read Dan's article on our website, this is um, something that you know you can see the passion ring through, and so we we wanted to spend a, a section of this of this podcast series talking about Dan's trip, thinking about uh, the implications of using uh, what what could be commonplace phrases. Uh, when thinking about um, even some of our most uh, hated rivals uh, on the pitch. Uh, and I think th- this is a section, if you haven't read the article, go read it. It's uh, fantastic, and, and I think Dan's uh, voice really streams through here. But I um, wanted to toss it over to Mike to kind of you know expand upon the article and to ask some pointed questions about the experience. Yeah, my first question for you, Dan, would be my my parents live in the D.C. area, and every time I get back, I make it a point of going to the um, the U.S. Holocaust Museum, uh, and and I keep a passport from there uh, on my desk to look at at times because for me, um, what I see in situations like this is uh, the greatest evil happens when there's indifference of good people. Um, and, and it's left a, a definitely lasting impact in my life. And I'm curious for you actually being at the camps, what kind of impact did that create for you? Um, well, I mean, it's a difficult one to describe, really. Chelsea decided to do these trips um, after an incident of uh, widespread anti-Semitic abuse at a game uh, in September, October, whatever it was last year. Um, and they started this, this campaign against anti-Semitism as a result. Uh, and the way that has manifested itself is they do these. Well, this was the first trip to Auschwitz-Birkenau. It's it's um, been you've, you mentioned it as a, a, a club-sponsored trip. It's actually run by the Holocaust Educational Trust, um, who do great work in educating people around here. And I've been on one of these before. I went on one about six years ago, uh, and I went on this one earlier this year with Chelsea, and. What the work they want to do, the work they really, really want to, to get through is to make people realise that this is real. There are those who will tell you that this didn't happen. There are those who you know, try to externalise it because maybe they don't want to believe it happened. Um, but you can't escape it if you go there and you see that it happened. And that is the thing that I think most who went on this trip will take away from it. Um it's not a film set. It's not a place. At one point, um, we're, we're shown the house of uh, the Commandant Rudolf Hess uh, and we're asked during the visit what we believe he was, you know, and somebody said, oh, he must have been a monster. And the point is he wasn't. He was a human being. He was doing something monstrous, you know, it was, it was horrific. Um, but... But the point is that this is humans doing things to humans. And I think that is the the most important thing that people took away from it. And that is clearly what Chelsea are trying to um, sort of push over as, as, as a takeaway as part of these visits. 
So Dan, it's it's well documented that you know Roman Abramovich himself, um, you know, he has an Israeli passport now, but he but he identifies as Jewish, um, and you know, for for things like you know the chance in September to happen in the stands, must have must have been eye opening, and it must have been you know a, a really tough experience for the owner of of the club that we all love so much to go through. I mean. Do you think that, you know, without speaking for him, obviously, but do you think that, you know, these types of chants um, kind of sparked such quick action in a way that, that he was able to say, all right, well, we're going to try and snuff that out as quickly as possible? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, and when the chance occurred, um, Chelsea were in a position, given the previous conduct of things we've seen like the Paris Metro and other things in, in recent years, um, they're in a position where they could potentially have been fined points. And they went to the Premier League and to the FA and they said, look, we've got this matter in hand and we've got big plans around this. We've got a fan education uh, plan that's going to start as a result. And the governing bodies went back to Chelsea and said, OK, you you do it your way uh, and we'll watch carefully. And I think they've got a lot of credit for that. There is no other club in the world that has done things like this and they deserve as a club an awful lot of credit for that um i think it's important at this point to say that that when very nearly probably 80 percent of a chelsea away end starts singing a chant that is deeply deeply anti-semitic that is not to say that everyone singing it is racist there are undoubtedly people singing it who are carried along with the moment who are maybe doing it because they think they're being you know uh, I, I suppose rebels or whatever, um, people who you know have had too much to drink. Let's be honest, um, but let it not be missed here. You know this is racism, and whatever you mean by singing it, the person who hears it is the person who is offended and is sort of uh, is is, uh, is 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 injured by it because that is what we're talking about, um, and. Whether or not you think you're singing about Tottenham when you sing these things, you are singing something that is deeply racist to a whole race of people. Now, I know, uh, you know, specifically to the, you know, the, the chant and kind of the, the incident that uh, transpired. I know, uh, Amity, you, you wrote about this for, um, you know, Howler and when it kind of happened. And, you know, I think referenced some of the, the work that Dan had done as well. Um, and I know you wanted to, to speak on that too. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, and I know this is, we're supposed to be having a discussion here, but it's, it's making me, it's annoying me now. I'm looking at the tweets from when Dan wrote the article. I mean, he gets, Dan gets these sorts of tweets for whatever stance he wants to stand up for, anything that's righteous, anything that you should actually want to care about if you're a tolerant Chelsea fan who wants to have other fans, you know, whether they like you or not. But I mean, I, that, the fact that people feel that it's, there's an exclusive, sort of nature of being a Chelsea fan and that, you know, we can say and do what we want. I mean, there's some of the stuff really just makes me so annoyed in a way that I can't really explain other than, you know, the, seri- the you know, just to sort of kind of really kind of put myself in the shoes of a person who'd be willing to expose himself in this way. But a lot of these fans say things like, why do you hate Chelsea fans so much to Dan for, for these sorts of things? Because he's calling into question their sort of blanket of security wherein they're they feel comfortable saying and doing these things. Um, but for me, what really amazed me the most is that 
you know, someone are saying he's the he's the racist. You know, he's the anti-Semite because he wants to draw attention to it. I mean, it, it really. I mean, it's it's hard to fathom. You know, really how someone can tie themselves up in knots making these sorts of excuses for what I find to just be anti-Semitism. I don't see anything short of it, and I think that people who are doing so are are, are kidding themselves. But why anyone would attempt to defend something in a necess- as a necessary and just disgusting as that in order to cheer on your favorite team is confusing, at, you know, at, at its best. But Dan was saying how he couldn't recall a single game in 34 years following this club during which he didn't hear that word. That, that in and of itself should be shocking. It should, it should be disgusting. It should move people to want to take action. And I think that, you know, the club are doing the right thing here. You know, they should be highlighting the, the atrocities of the Holocaust. They should be pointing out, you know, what there still is to do, what they're still left to do, clearly, if, if people are clinging to some farcical idea of the fact that we should sing this word along with our, you know, while chanting and cheering for our team, who, who have had Jewish players, who have an owner, who in, in, who who's in this in this faith? I just I don't know. For me, it's laughable, but honestly, it's not funny. So uh, the fact that you know Dan gets this sort of vitriol for pointing out the obvious is it's kind of amazing. But it really you know it it, rec- it made me recall different sorts of uh, conversations, and those are those that have been had you know in America. You know, obviously the you know you boys from LBP will know about the call to remove Confederate stat- uh, monuments in states across America where they've stood for decades and. There was a backlash to that. There was a huge backlash to the, the idea that we should, I mean, at least for American, African-Americans, that we should just have these constant reminder of the indignities and oppressions of millions. But there obviously still exists this thin, whether minority or not, a bigoted reactionary contingent of Americans who just want these things to, quote, remain the same. And that's one of the things that one of the kids, I think he's a kid because I, I can't imagine, you know, that someone who's... Right, risen to an adult status would not have their face on their Twitter profile and just say these sorts of things. So I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. However, they said things like, it's been like this for decades. And then they went on to insinuate that we might just hate working class fans. So both to echo what Dan was saying, that there was this sort of minority and underbelly, I guess, if you will, back in, in the 80s and 90s, I guess it sort of persisted in that sense. You know, people still feel like, well, that's just the way things are. And that obviously is a tired and ridiculous argument, but it, it's, it, it is a little bit difficult to fight against these sorts of, well, you know, just accept it and move on sort of types. And I don't know if that's because it doesn't affect them in their daily lives um, or because they just simply are okay with things being the way they are. But that's, you know, it's, it's something that we struggle with. And what Chelsea are doing as a club, I think, is admirable, frankly. And I think there are a lot of clubs who can take their cues from that. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there, Amity. I think uh, as Americans, we are not um, we are not so uh, you know un, unaware of how you know different acts of anti-Semitism or racism you know kind of prevail in our in our society, right? Like we we have a lot of the same problems, some worse um, th- than than other nations do. Uh, and you know, I kind of in part one illustrated the Charlottesville thing, which was quote unquote, a reaction to the uh, tearing down of a Confederate monument, like you said earlier. Um, but what it really was, was a, a white nationalist rally that, you know, whether that statue had been ripped down or not was probably going to happen. Um, and, you know, I actually want to, I, I kind of want to pass the ball from that thought onto what Dan wrote in his article, which I thought, you know, to me, Dan was, was kind of the, the, the big the moment, the crescendo of everything, which, 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to read a couple of your words here and then I would love to, you know, maybe get an anecdote or two from you, um, along the way here, which is, I saw people who cracked jokes about gas ovens and spurs on the way there who remained quiet on the way back, a small advance. I saw others who claimed to have been cured of any anti or any lingering anti-Semitism by the experience and let time be the judge of that. And for the most part, I saw uh, people who happen to be involved in football for work, for play, who were utterly broken by the sights they had seen and the stories they had heard. Uh, can you walk us through, you know, the, it's a, it's a you know, collection of people who go on this trip. Can you talk about, you know, who, who went, you know, the, the, the types that you saw and then just the experiences of, and, and, you know, the looks and the, and the, the phrases that were kind of uttered on the, on the trip? Yeah, it was it was a mixed bunch of people. Um, for the most part, actually, it was members of staff from Chelsea, uh, and I think that again shows the incredible commitment that the club is making to this. Um, I suppose 150 or people on the flight, maybe 80 odd of them would have been Chelsea employees. A, lot, a few of them were, were also Chelsea fans. Uh, a smaller number, I don't know, maybe 30 odd, uh, and the rest were sort of support around that. Um, but what I found was that an awful lot of the people there, I'd say I, I knew, um, maybe this is example of uh, some sort of echo chamber. We talk about that sort of thing a lot in uh, in politics these days. Uh, and those people, um, I almost knew as soon as we set off, would be on the same page as me, really, on these matters, people I spoke to about this before. Um, there are a few people that I didn't recognise and, you know, they, they fell across the different groups of people in, in terms of their reactions I think it's impossible to go somewhere like that and not have some sort of incredibly uh, emotional reaction to it because just the way it is very much in your face. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were murdered in a very, very short space of time on that piece of land. Uh, and there are all sorts of, as well as all the evidence of the tools that were used to do that there's also all sorts of evidence that they were once there uh, and that is in the form of their shoes all categorized in in cabinets uh, sort of toiletries and things they took with them the things you take if you were being told you had to leave home in a hurry and you were going off to some work camp which is what they were told they were doing and probably the the one site that most affected me and most affects most people is the sight of clumps and clumps of tens of thousands of people's hair shorn off them and left in a cabinet. Um, and you know, it's, these are difficult sights for people of any age or in any, any background to take in. Uh, but I think everybody came away from there with certainly a very, very strong emotional feeling as a result. To uh, tie in a little bit to um, speaking about calls for action, um, I myself have been following the club for <clears throat> almost 20 years, um, but still missing a big chunk of that history. Dan, what, what do you think is, what are, what are good resources for American fans to, um, to use possibly to avoid easy traps? I mean, you look at something as simple as, you know, the uh, Chelsea headhunters, you know, if, if you're not a uh, a student of history, you might not recognize the, you know, the totem cop for the death's head badge from the SS. Um, and you can sometimes make, make a mistake of 
you know, trying to be extreme or trying to fit in? What, what's, what's a good way for people who are new to the club or miss that period to avoid missteps of history? Yeah, it's a very good point because the, um, the, the uniqueness of particularly British football is, is and, and I think the yardstick by which how much you can often tell someone gets it is how much of the social history they know and how much of it they understand. And so people often rush head on into it and they, they grab everything they can get. And sometimes that can be some of the stuff that's actually quite unpalatable. Um, and it's funny because it, it's, it, I've been out in places like Singapore in pre-season last season uh, where I've seen um, fans from, for example, Indonesia, who who sing some of the songs that that we would not sing at all these days, and wear headhunters badges because they think what they're buying into is um, the the history of the club, and that that makes them more uh, enmeshed in it as a result. I think it's important that um, yes, all all of the social history is is really valuable and it's good to know the songs the people you're talking about but you need to look at these things with a critical eye as with going into any you know area of of sport or art or whatever you know you you might like for example Wagner's music but you know it doesn't mean that you have to all of a sudden become a neo-nazi you know you might (laughs) there's all sorts of um you go into any gallery and there are plenty of uh, painters out out there who might have had very very strange political views or indeed in some cases might have had quite abhorrent um, practices in terms of abusing the pe- uh, abusing people who are around them. You know, it's okay to appreciate their art without going down that line. And, and the critical eye is important. Weigh everything up, I think, and and you know, don't just because uh, you 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 absorb most, it doesn't necessarily necessarily make you the best fan. When we take a, a look at that, and, and again, I think we, we will continue to, to beat the drum and say that if you have not read the article, uh, this is another reference point to go back and, and read it. You know, I think, what is, you know, was there any kind of thought around the the action or kind of communication uh, to those who went on the trip as to, as to how they keep the, the feeling, the emotion, um, the, the the anger to the the atrocity alive as they came back and, and how do they continue to be elements of, of positive change was there any kind of thought or maybe kind of uh, guidance on how to do that that was provided um I, there was a little bit i think one of the things to remember and i think chelsea will be very very open about this and also the holocaust educational trust will be too is that this is a work in progress we're into uncharted territory here we're doing something no football club has ever ever even attempted um and when the holocaust educational trust do these trips with for example school kids it's a requirement before they go that they hear from a holocaust survivor face to face in this country um, and you know that's a, a group of people, the survivors, who are running out because you know the years that have passed are many now. But it's very, very valuable, and I'd like to see that maybe made a part of these trips when Chelsea do them in future. There's also a requirement to have some sort of learning lesson afterwards. Um, and I mean, I suppose in a way, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because getting a load of A-level, this is higher studies, kids, high school kids or whatever, into a class after a trip like that and talk, getting them to talk about their experiences is one thing. You can't really do that with adult football fans, can you? So the, the, the proof will be in whether these people go back and you know 
in the pub before a match. It's a bit of a strange setting to do it, but they mention, oh, I went to Auschwitz and this is what happened. And, you know, um, we'll find out, won't we? But I think these, these trips will become more commonplace. Chelsea, I think, plan to do them yearly. Um, and it'll be nice to see maybe more younger fans go on once in future as the, the, the gap in history between now and when those things happen becomes greater. It's important that that generation knows about these things. But, you know, the whole thing is in itself a positive project. One of the the trends that you know we've seen in um, you know in U.S. kind of sporting events is you know when there there are items of intolerance or you know just maybe people who've had a little too much to drink. There's ability now in a lot of stadiums to you know to text. Um, so there's there's an anonymity to your ability to report or to signal out to individuals of you know kind of with insecurity or to the organization that there there's a there's a problem child that needs to be dealt with in that scenario you know i i just wonder maybe is there some level of you know kind of thought or an idea that you know i think because you know you've highlighted that that you know you you know kind of had seen some of these faces and and, and knew these individuals to be people who felt comfortable uh, you know saying certain things or you know making particular jokes and you know i wonder if there's some level of you know kind of not necessarily profiling but you know auditing the club could do and say hey you know we we've had incidents uh, you know occur and you know we believe that you know you have may have been involved with this and you know in order to maintain your your standing with the club this year we're going to invite you on a you know a trip with us in order to ensure that you have some historical context and you know eventually we'd like to work through you know x percentage of the match going population as our way of kind of educating and removing this level of intolerance from our ranks. And I don't know what your you know thought would be to that, or if you feel like that's even maybe a feasible plan that the club could kind of work into. Well, it's a difficult one because there's two ways of looking at it. You, you can look at it as if somebody who, who goes down this road is curable. Uh, and, and so I suppose there's been some talk that maybe um, the penalty, if you like, for being caught um behind being behind racist views is that you should go on one of these almost like you go on a, a class after you get caught speeding of, of awareness it's a difficult one isn't it because because then you're you're rewarding a form of behavior that let's be honest pretty much everyone who's behind it knows is wrong um on the other hand do you just ban people outright if they're caught doing it and then risk disenfranchising them and sending them off into a corner of the world where they can foster even worse views it's very very tricky um and finding that balance is is important the actual act of catching people is in itself quite difficult we do have uh, an app in the uk um report it um which is run by um the one of the anti-racist charities in football here um but there's still also a very very strong belief that nobody should grass up as as fans like to put it their own for things uh, so you know that that in itself is seen as a, a social negative um the the belief that needs to of course be changed is that when you when you go into this sort of abuse you're actually affecting everyone including our own name and our own face as a fan base you know you are if you ignore it then you are risking causing that fire come back on yourself. Um, and I've been in situations, for example, some years ago, I was at a game 
in Bulgaria, uh, a Chelsea away game, where a guy who stood next to me doing Nazi salutes and, and I turned around and, to him and told him in, in no uncertain terms that if he was going to do that, he could do it somewhere else in the ground because I did not want to be the person caught on television next to him. And I think it'd be nice if a lot more people did that. Um, so you know, it's, it's a, a, a many-layered thing. It's a complex issue and it's not one that we can, we can resolve in one tweet or one sentence. Uh, and just to kind of tie back into the you know the the chance and, and how, how it really reflects on Chelsea fans that there would be some amongst them who wouldn't speak out. Uh, it's it's important that people recognize that it's not always going to happen in the stands. It's not always going to be this one chant that people are hearing. But as I said before, a lot of this stuff is done on social media, and because of it, there is the tendency to want to just, as you can do, turn a blind eye. And when people do sort of speak out, as Dan has, as I have. You do get the sort of backlash of you know oh don't be a grass why why are you trying to why why do you why are you want to hate our our club or why why are you a coward the fun, you know how they turn these things around on people but I guess also it requires a little bit of attention around the league and while you can you know report these incidences the FA is made to look really kind of silly when you consider they might be more inclined to punish one club for their fans' behavior for another thing that they won't for their, you know, one club, another club to do. Like, for example, if Spurs fans, as their, you know, own supporters trust has said as recently as 2015, they believe that they can sing it and it's not an issue. So if the FA wants to punish clubs, if we're, you know, if we're looking for them to take a stance against this and single out people, as you said, Dan, on camera, you know, anybody who's standing in the area might also get brought in and ask, you know, were you, were you there? Were you, did you see, did you see anything? The idea is that you would want someone to be punished, but can you really punish other people for something that one club is okay with? And I also think that sort of, I guess, gray area has led to the emboldening of fans online. So I guess my only point really is that obviously anti-Semitism is always vile. It's never something we should accept. And the idea that there can be a gray area enough that people feel comfortable operating within it is, is troublesome. So, you know, any history of intolerance does not make intolerance acceptable. It just makes it more common. So that the idea that we're living here in this sort of uh, bubble, I guess you will, if you know where where people are just simply okay with the way things are, is is not is not not cool. And that's not something that any of us, I think, on the podcast or any of the Chelsea fans who I've interacted with positively for years uh, would would feel. So. I think that we need to be this with a strong response. Chelsea's decisions to work with police and kick it out is proactive, especially when they had their own instance. And as our press officer, Steve Atkins, came out and said, quote, people, use that, people that use that kind of language against others always try and argue a gray area. There is no gray area. That language used was anti-Semitic, and we have a zero-tolerance policy towards it. And I think that the Chelsea fans um, should try to live and, and kind of make their behavior echo that sort of sentiment because... It is in working together and, 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 in, and in feeling that, hey, if I speak out, I'm doing the right thing and people will support me. There's that sort of feeling about being a part of a club and being a part of what, you know, a family sort of atmosphere. And that's what I think that, you know, at the end of the day, supporters should have amongst other supporters. So that's my two cents. Yeah, if I can just uh, chip in, and I think that's all very, very, very valuable. Um, on, on, on the issue of the Y word and the so-called reclaiming of it by, by Tottenham, um, and... <laughs> It's a situation that doesn't help at all, um, and you know if if you you probably the the 
the easiest way um, to think about this is if you if you substitute the the Y word for the N word, um, you can see that there are some people, uh, rightly or wrongly, who decide to use that often in popular music, things like that, because they say they are reclaiming the word. Um, there are all sorts of arguments, and we can get bogged down on this here about whether that's right or wrong. I think that's maybe a discussion for a different day. Um, but the reclaiming of the Y word at Tottenham. Um, isn't right because honestly probably 97% or more of the people at Tottenham don't have the right to reclaim that word but the way it is used at Tottenham is in a positive way as far as they're concerned they are using it as a badge of pride if you take the position of a Jewish person hearing that uh, a load of people are part of an army that's marching together under the Y banner then that is however um unacceptable their use of the word is that is a positive portrayal of it singing we hate the y word and people who are from that background is a hate crime and it's all about the intonation and this is something people need to remember a lot of chelsea fans in particular say we're just singing about tottenham what about the jewish chelsea fan who's standing in the away end at Leicester, and I've spoken to a couple of them, at least who were, who is absolutely appalled by that because that word is being directed against them as well. And this is the problem when you start making exceptions for these things. Um, it is, as Amadi said, racist. It is offensive and it has to stop. So we've had a chance now to go through two segments, uh, first looking at anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism and racism uh, you know, through the, the sphere of Chelsea and you know, the, the history of it and talking to uh, Paul Cannonville and, and others. Uh, we've also had a chance now to dive a little bit deeper into uh, Dan's article, which you know, talked about the trip that Chelsea supporters and staff went on uh, to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And we're going to wrap up this segment and then transition into a third segment and uh, the final and the, the first go at this series. And, uh, you know, I feel like uh, we'd like to say that it's going to be solved by the end of these three podcasts, but uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. So it may be ongoing in that regard. Uh, but the third in our initial series uh, will be the, the kind of end moment. And that's going to be looking at the path forward. So we're going to take some time to think about and discuss ways that supporters, uh, both locally and abroad, can work together to further uh, educate those who are maybe not aware of the, the impact of their words or the connotation of what they say, uh, and then also to help eradicate the intolerance from those who are aware uh, and to amplify the voices uh, that, that do need to be heard. So we look forward to hearing from you then.